accountable to you. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. The season finale of Inside Politics this morning on the show, Premier John Horgan, B.C. Liberals leader Andrew Wilkinson, and the leader of the B.C. Green Party, Andrew Weaver. Starting off the show with a bang, a pleasure to welcome to the show the Premier of this province, John Horgan. Premier, good morning and how are you? I'm doing really well, Shane. Good to be on the show. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. I guess first things first, uh, it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride since uh, you formed government uh, thanks to that uh, agreement with the Green Party. Uh, a bit of an interesting year You uh, to your uh, to your compliment. You haven't let any grass grow under your feet. You've been a busy guy. Your government's been busy. Uh, just off the top, sort of highs and lows from the last year, things that you're really happy about, maybe some uh, thing or two that uh, if you could have a do-over, you get a do-over on? Well, it's been a, a very busy 16 months. Uh, we hit the ground running. We uh, started looking for uh, uh, issues that we could uh, focus on to make life better for people. We, of course, made a series of commitments during the campaign to make life more affordable. So we looked right away at the medical services premium tax, the only province in the country that has an MSP tax. And and uh, through the work of Minister Carol James, it will be eliminated uh, completely. It was half half re- reduced in the last budget. It'll be eliminated completely uh, by January of 2020, and that's going to put about $1,800 a month back into a uh, year back into families' pockets. So that was a big deal. We have a, a serious challenge when it comes to uh, building schools, and you you know that uh, not just in Kamloops but right across the province. So a capital plan to put people to work and to put kids in new modern classrooms is a, a key part of our plan going forward. But uh, we, we hit the ground right off the bat having to deal with the question of Site C. And you'll remember that was a very difficult decision for us to make almost a year ago to this day. But uh, ultimately it was uh, to proceed with the project or to, uh, to blow up $4 billion. And I wasn't prepared to do that. My colleagues weren't prepared to do that. Uh, so we made the tough choice to proceed, and we've got an, a quality assurance board in place. We've changed the board at BC Hydro, and we're confident that the project will come in on budget. And, of course, we'll need that energy in the long term. And while we're on energy, uh, we also worked with uh, investors to secure the largest private sector investment in Canadian history, working with the federal government to land the LNG Canada project in Kitimat, which will mean about $23 billion in revenue to the province that we can put towards the things that matter to people. So those are certainly the highlights. Last week we uh, launched our our climate action plan that will capture the uh, emissions from LNG Canada as well as put in place incentives for people to reduce their own uh, impact on on the environment and the uh, pollution that they're putting into the air by giving incentives to uh, retrofit houses, uh, getting into low emission and zero emission vehicles over time, uh, all of these issues have been uh, difficult to grapple with, but very exciting and well-received by most of the people that I talk to. All right. Well, uh, a whole bunch of stuff to jump into there. Why don't we start off with the climate plan? Because you're right, uh, the Site C was a contentious decision. Uh, you ran on uh, potentially uh, scrapping it and then uh, had that tough decision, which you which you made, of course, to stick with the dam. Uh, with the climate plan unleashed uh, recently, I'm, I'm kind of curious. It relies heavily on electrification. Uh, I talked to Mr. Weaver, who says, listen, we don't need to build any more dams. We need more wind and more solar. But from, from your side of things, uh, it sounds like we're going to have more than Site C can bear as far as power production. So it, does it mean more dams, Premier, or, or are you looking at other things? We have a surplus of electricity today, and uh, that's before Site C comes on, on stream in 2024. So we are going to have abundant, low-cost, clean energy. And, of course, the best solution is to get that into the economy to help us uh, displace uh, fossil fuels. Uh, natural gas is, of course, a transition fuel. But if we want to get people out of uh, gas-guzzling trucks, we, we need to work with the manufacturing sector to start building low-emission light utility vehicles, zero-emission vehicles over time, and that that needs to be a market decision by the automakers. And I think we're seeing that happen right now with the tragic news in uh, Oshawa that we're losing a bunch of jobs in central Canada as GM starts to retrofit for the future. But that future is now in British Columbia, and we have a competitive advantage because of our abundant electricity So electrification of the economy, whether it's in transportation or in our industries like natural gas, forestry, mining, uh, those are the ways we're going to be able to reduce costs over time. Uh, The plan was endorsed by the BC Business Council, some of the largest employers in the province. They know and understand we need to get there. 
um, indigenous leaders, uh, the uh, Leadership Council, fully supportive. We've been working very cooperatively on reconciliation agreements right across the piece. So we're well, well placed and we're going to need more energy. And, and Mr. Weaver's right. We need wind, we need solar, but we also need to be able to backstop that intermittent power with our reservoirs. That's our advantage in the piece. That's our advantage in the Kootenays. Uh, and the challenge now is, can we bring on low-cost alternatives uh, that will allow us to, uh, to fully electrify our economy by 2024, or 2040, I should say. So with BC Hydro itself, and I know you're very familiar with that Crown Corporation uh, being the critic in that file for a number of years, but the Ministry of Finance is doing a deep dive and a review of the books at BC Hydro. We're waiting for that to arrive. Uh, a new role for the Auditor General uh, come the new year with BC Hydro. Uh, and I know you're very familiar with the deferral accounts and the amount of money that's sitting in those. But are you concerned? I know ICBC has gotten a fair amount of spotlight for sort of the dumpster fire there. But are you concerned about BC Hydro's books and any potential problems there? Oh, absolutely. And you're right, Shane, that uh, we had not anticipated the magnitude of the problem at ICBC. So that has taken a whole bunch of our energy and a whole bunch of taxpayer money to stop the bleeding there. Uh, we seem to have that under control. Minister Eby's done a very good job of product reform and changing uh, how we do business at, with our public auto insurance company. Uh, there's still more work to do there. We're not out of the woods yet, but that's kind of for, overshadowed the problems at BC Hydro. And of course, the, the root of that was a, a $10 billion decision to build more capacity when we didn't need it. And the market, not just in British Columbia, but across the Western states, if not the, the whole United States, is awash in low-cost energy. So it was a strategic blunder to proceed early, but now that we're in, what can we do? How can we make this uh, work for us? But that also involves looking at how BC Hydro got here. And because of the, the good uh, managing of our finances by Carol James, we were able to put a, almost a billion dollars down last summer onto the deferral accounts to drop them down to a manageable level. But we have a long, long way to go yet. There is a review coming. We'll probably not see the details of that until just before the budget in February. But there's a lot of work to do at BC Hydro. We've revamped the board. Uh, the leadership, uh, the, the executive group is uh, working diligently to meet targets. And uh, we have finance officials there as well. So I think there's a, there's a team effort here to try and make sure we keep costs down for people. That's our primary objective. But the corporation needs to be on a strong footing. And, and I believe we're well on our way to getting there. Uh, the other energy thing that you mentioned was the LNG Canada facility. I know more than welcome on an economic level. I was struck by talking recently to uh, Mr. Weaver, who says uh, it will never be built. I'm curious what you think about that. Well, Mr. Weaver and I disagree on on uh, the use of natural gas as a transition fuel. He's very passionate, as you know, about climate action. That's why he got into politics in the first place. And we've been working very well together. He was instrumental in the foundations of the climate action plan. Uh, but I also believe, and, uh, and, and I know most British Columbians do, that we need to take advantage of our competitive opportunities when it comes to natural resources. Uh, were it not for mining and forestry, and most recently natural gas, our economy wouldn't be the hottest in the country. We lead the country in economic growth. We lead the country with the lowest unemployment rate. We've got a $1.3 billion surplus in this budget year and the prospect of the largest private sector investment ever. This is all to the good. And working with LNG Canada was a very, a very instructive. Uh, I was the critic, as you, as you said, Shane, for energy for a long, long time. I know this sector very, very well. And I was critical of the former government because they tended to pile on costs to investment, making it difficult for us to be competitive with other jurisdictions. And that's why we saw some of the larger projects disappear over the past couple of years is that the former government just put too many costs on them to be competitive. So we sat down and we said, where, where did we get to with the last group, uh, the former government, and where do we need to go to get success? And we sat down also, of course, with the prime minister. Uh, he and I worked very closely on this with our finance officials to find a way forward that was not subsidizing this industry, but was not debilitating them with additional costs. And uh, we found a spot that allowed us to uh, work together, two levels of government, Indigenous peoples, uh, particularly the Heisla in, uh, in Kitimat, as well as local governments right across the corridor to make this deal come together. And it's going to be very positive for our economy, not just in the north, not just in, in the interior, but right across BC. I'm very excited about it. And, and it, it is a competitive process. There's no uh, sweetheart deal here. We are going to get a good return for our resource 
Indigenous people will be full participants in this process, and it fits within our climate action plan. Those are my objectives. When we started the negotiation, uh, we got to a positive place, and uh, Canada's going to benefit as a result. Okay, Premier, why don't we take a quick break, and we'll cut to a commercial break, and we'll continue on the other side with our conversation on Inside Politics with Premier John Horgan here on Radio NL. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking to Premier John Horgan. Premier, I wanted to circle back to ICBC because today we're going to get a look at proposed rate hikes from ICBC. Uh, And as you and I both know, uh, whatever that number is, and it could be major, it's going to cause a reaction. And one of the things that uh, I think cuts across party lines in this province, other than real estate, is a surge in your insurance prices. No matter where you plant your political flag, uh, your insurance goes up, you get pretty mad at the government of the day. That's true. And and it's not just, uh, you know, I mentioned medical services premiums, MSP off the top. Uh, There were tolls in the Lower Mainland that were only for people in the Lower Mainland, although if you came from Kamloops to the Lower Mainland, you had to pay a toll to cross a bridge. Uh, Didn't have to do that anywhere else. They didn't have to do that on the Coquihalla anymore, for that matter. Uh, So after many, many years of toll paying, we did away with that, or the government of the day did away with that. And and I believe that all of the infrastructure in BC is there to benefit all of us. Reducing cost is critical to that, but we have to make sure that our crown corporations, whether it's uh, BC Ferries, BC Hydro, or ICBC, or the Lottery Corporation for that matter, which has also had its share of challenges, uh, we can get into that uh, in a moment, but we wanted to make sure that these four foundational crown corporations were doing what they were designed to do, which is to reduce costs for people and make sure that they had quality services as a result. Now, that's been a challenge with uh, three of the four of them. BC Ferries is a different animal altogether. We're grappling with that as well. But ultimately, uh, my message to to your listeners and my message to British Columbians is we're going to keep rates as low as we possibly can, but we need to be mindful of the challenges that we inherited. I don't want to spend a lot of time blaming the the last group, but um, they did ignore a pretty serious problem, and they were going to push it past the next election to deal with. And, and that's not how I roll. I, I, when the problems emerge, we need to address them for this generation and future generations. And if we're going to have a corporation to protect us with public auto insurance, as it was designed to do, it needs to be on a, a sound financial footing. Let's talk BC Lottery Corporation. Money laundering has been a, a fire starter issue out in the province over the last year or so, and will continue to be as we move into a second phase uh, that moves into real estate and housing and uh, all the things that Sam Cooper and others continue to dig out uh, day by day. But uh, how do we deal with this thing, John, there's lots of public outrage out there. Uh, people want answers. They want uh, some kind of, I think they want somebody to pay the piper on this thing. So how, how do we accommodate that? Something uh, bad has been done to a fairly large degree. And how do, how do we find justice for people out there? You're absolutely right. This is not victimless crime. This is, uh, the, the, the result of this is uh, dirty money from illegal activity, much of it from fentanyl importation and fentanyl distribution, which is killing British Columbians, and we need to stamp it out. Uh, We had expected, through the work of Dr. German, to draw attention to the problem as we saw it, and you've talked about uh, Sam Cooper, the reporter who's done just spectacular work on this, to draw attention, public attention to the problems in many sectors. But we expected, uh, most recently, just a couple of weeks ago, a prosecution to come forward so there would be consequences. The public would have an assurance that our legal system and our prosecutions were such that we could put bad actors behind bars. And a very major case was uh, rejected and the charges were stayed. I spoke to the Prime Minister about this directly uh, last Friday in Montreal at the First Minister's Conference. He has the same concerns that I do. We need to make sure that both levels of government are working cooperatively to stop the flow of fentanyl into British Columbia and then to work on illegal money that's being laundered through our economy, whether it's through gambling, whether it's through real estate, whether it's through uh, luxury autos, which is another area of concern. And, and ultimately, I think the public wants to see some people held accountable for this. And many have said, well, we need a public inquiry. My experience with public inquiries over the years, as I've observed them, is that it's a lot of court time, a lot of lawyers, and not a lot of outcome at the end. I'm not ruling it out. Uh, Minister Eby and I talk about this regularly. Where are we going? How are we going to give public confidence that we're on top of this issue? 
but I would prefer that there be prosecutions and that our legal system do what we all expect it to do, and that's hold bad actors accountable and put them behind bars. Uh, uh, but we haven't yet heard completely what the problem was with the, the case uh, that was recently thrown out. Uh, again, Mr. Eby's working with the federal officials on that, the prime minister's concerned. So we've got this to the highest level in the country, and now we just need to make sure we bring it home. And uh, as I say, I'm not ruling out a public inquiry, but I would prefer the courts to do what we, we as citizens expect them to do, hold bad actors accountable, and then there be consequences for it. And that dovetails into uh, China itself, uh, which has some kind of a role here. That's where the fentanyl is coming from. That's where it seems to be a, a fair degree of the of the illegal money that's flowing into our market is coming from. Yet on the reverse side of that, uh, the country itself provides an economic opportunity for this province, as you well know. Considering the arrest of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou and, and China as a whole, uh, A, do you have any concerns on the relationship with the current tensions between ourselves and China? And B, how do you manage the relationship with that country so that we can benefit economically, but we're also also being flooded with fentanyl and illegal money. Well, we've been working very cooperatively with the Consul General here in Vancouver on behalf of the province of British Columbia, but international relations, as you know, and your listeners know, are the responsibility of the federal government. Again, I spoke to the Prime Minister, the arrest, the Huawei executive took place while we were in Montreal. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the court actions going on uh, this week. We did have a delegation in the air, uh, forestry executives and Minister Doug Donaldson. Uh, China is our second largest uh, market for forest products and very important to our economy. Uh, we try uh, as best we can to separate the uh, concerns about illegal activity from the uh, legitimate and genuine trade opportunities that exist not just in China but throughout Asia. But you're absolutely right. I think people sitting at home are wondering, well, how are we dealing with a country that the center of the export of fentanyl, uh, at the same time we're trying to sell our agricultural products, our our forestry products, our natural gas, uh, and that's kind of a disconnect for people. But I'm able to do it, I think, by focusing on what are the benefits to British Columbians of having a robust uh, trade relationship, not just with the United States. And we've seen the challenges that that brings uh, over the past couple of years, not just on softwood, but tariffs on steel and aluminum, and then the impact on our agriculture sector under the new uh, NAFTA. So we're trying to keep trade relationships open, but also speaking candidly, as the Prime Minister did, about human rights and uh, potential illegal activity and money laundering in British Columbia and Canada. But I think we can do both. I think that there's a lot of illegal activity from other jurisdictions around the globe, and uh, to focus exclusively on China with a massive population uh, I think misses the point that we always have to be vigilant and we count on our federal government and our border security uh, to make sure that we're keeping Canadians safe, uh, not just from uh, bad actors, but from the, uh, the, uh, the, the result of that, which is the, the illegal drug trade that happens in British Columbia. Uh, Mr. Weaver would like to renegotiate CASA, the agreement between your two parties in the new year. Says you've accomplished a lot that was on the original agreement, and uh, whether it's a new deal or an appendix, wants some new issues on there that the two parties can work together on in the new year. How do you feel about that? Andrew and I have talked about that offline, uh, and I agree that we have accomplished a great deal in a short period of time. And and to have a reboot or a a second go at uh, other issues that we want to work together on so that the public's clear on what our our focus is. I think that's reasonable. Uh, We're not in a hurry to do that, uh, nor is Andrew, I don't believe. But it's not unreasonable, I don't think, for people who are working together cooperatively to try and produce good results for British Columbians to have conversations about where we go now. Uh, Circumstances change uh, always in public life, but I'm pretty comfortable with where we are right now. And those issues that that we do uh, see an opportunity to build on, we're going to do that in the new year. All right. And the final topic of proportional representation, as we await word on the result of the referendum, uh, hopefully before Christmas here. But uh, we're looking at a turnout, uh, with not final yet, of course, but I, I'm thinking it'll probably be in the 42, 43 percent range. Uh, a, uh, from you, is that good enough? And B, do you have any regrets how this thing was run in order to engage more people? Well, I think it's a pretty decent turnout. Of course, you always want to have the number to be as high as possible. But I looked at uh, municipal election results just this past October. And there were a lot of communities that elected mayors and councils with less than 20% of the voter turnout. And we didn't say that mayor or council is illegitimate. We called them mayor and council. Democracy is a a precious jewel, but you have to show up. And we did our best to encourage people to uh, participate. 
uh, the opposite, the opposing side did their very best to encourage people to participate. And uh, I think we did on both sides the best we could to engage the public. I'm comfortable with a 40% turnout, and I think it's going to be very, very close. Uh, I'm I'm proud of uh, the campaign that, that I ran, focusing on the positive and focusing on a hopeful future rather than the fear of moving in away from what we know has not given us a pure democratic outcome election after election. So for me, uh, I campaigned to have a referendum. We've had it. I think we held our heads high. We talked about the upside of changing how we do business in British Columbia, focusing on cooperation rather than conflict, on hope instead of fear, all of those things that uh, I think are, are what get people inspired in the mornings rather than complaining about how bad things are. Let's work hard to fix them. And, and I think changing our electoral system is a good step in the right direction. Being Premier is a busy, busy thing. You've had a busy, busy year. I'm sure you've been away from home a lot more than you would like. Uh, a lot of pressure on you to deliver uh, this Christmas for Mrs. Horgan or no? <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's funny. I, I was very anxious to, to get away uh, for a couple of weeks, uh, but our son, uh, who lives in London, England, is coming home for Christmas and he's bringing a young woman with him. So uh, any hopes of a holiday were dashed because we've got to be there to make sure his laundry's done and he's well fed. Uh, sure he could take care of himself, but my wife's saying we're staying home, so I'm happy about that. As long as she's happy, I'm happy. All right, sounds good. Uh, Mr. Premier, it's always a pleasure. It's good to talk to you, and uh, if we don't talk before, a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you and yours. And Merry Christmas to you and your family, Shane. Enjoy every minute of it. And that was Premier John Horgan. We're going to take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, the leader of the official opposition, the B.C. Liberals leader, Andrew Wilkinson. News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back to the season finale of Inside Politics here on Radio NL. Pleasure to be joined on the phone now by the leader of the official opposition, BC Liberals leader, Andrew Wilkinson. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? I'm just fine, and I'm down here in the soggy lower mainland wishing I was back in Kamloops. <laughs> How's that Christmas shopping coming along? Well, you know, it's a changed world because my kids are coming into town just before Christmas, and they're all sending in web links for what they want. <laughs> not quite the same thing. Glad I'm not in the, in the shopping mall retail trade because it's got to be tough these days. Yeah, I know it is. That tech swing is, I mean, you and I could probably talk about that for hours. I find that fascinating, the automation and the tech and the and sort of changing generations and how, we, how one generation deals with it and the other is baffled by it. It's unbelievable. Yeah, um, exactly. So uh, you, uh, you've had a busy year, so why don't we start off there. Uh, 2018, uh, probably been some highs and some lows. Uh, why don't you tell me sort of uh, what your successes have been and successes with the party, and maybe, uh, you know, if you had a do-over or two, uh, what do you regret out there? Well, it's interesting just to track it chronologically. You know, I got this job on February the 3rd and was delighted to have pretty much immediate support from all of the competitors in the leadership race. And we ran through a spring session that started within a few days of the leadership race, and that went smoothly. And we've really found our feet, and we're doing well as the opposition. Our job is to hold the government to account, and we're doing that well in pointing out the various things that they're messing up. They've uh, made a thorough mess of this ride-hailing business. Their legislative agenda is basically either housekeeping stuff or revenge legislation, as I call it, things that don't matter to regular people, like lobbying legislation. And they have no particular plan for the economy. So we've been pushing them about where's the opportunity for British Columbians, where's the chance to get ahead. And instead we hear the only things they've got on the plate are liberal ideas, completing Site C and uh, LNG. And so beyond that, we're not seeing anything from the NDP about the chance to uh, build your life in BC and make things better for our kids. Uh, just to reflect back on that question, I mean, everything comes with highs and lows. Is there, uh, you know, being the leader of a party, uh, getting all of that, your head wrapped around that, getting an agenda, tackling all opposition stuff, reorganizing, refreshing, reframing, all of that, th- all of that stuff. Uh, in, in that sort of process, anything that you sort of regret or wish you could have a do-over on or no? Well, not so much a do-over as I am learning that I've got to be on my feet like 16 hours a day. In this job, I'm finding out that a 14-hour day is a late one, and 18 hours is not out of the question. So I'm in Surrey this morning. I've made five visits here. I uh, have a couple of conference calls, another visit this afternoon. And so it's this constant sense that you're never able to keep up with the demand and the 
goals and it's my job to get out there as much as I can. So been all over the province. It's gone very well in terms of reception. And interestingly, throughout the interior, people are remarkably fed up with the NDP. Trans Mountain was a big issue all over the interior, not just along the pipeline route through Kamloops and down the North Thompson, but all over the interior, people had the sense they weren't being heard. And the chance that there'll be a whole bunch more oil going through by rail cars does not impress people when there could be a pipeline being built right now. How do we break, uh, and this is the one thing I always ask because I'm curious, how do we break the impasse? I mean, we have a bitterly divided uh, group out there, pro and anti-pipeline. Uh, you got the First Nations interest, you got all the politics, federal, provincial, all that kind of jazz built around this thing. But you also have a need, as we're seeing in Alberta, this is having a real on-the-ground effect. With the rail cars, there's a danger there. I mean, agree or not, with pipelines, they're still the safest way to, to get oil from one place to the other. But how do you break the impasse to get a pipeline built in the climate that we see out there today? Yeah, this is a challenge for all of us as Canadians because I think people have realized that with all of these uh, projects being stalled and objected to and you know, the Energy East pipeline is going nowhere back to New Brunswick, even though New Brunswick wants it, Ontario wants it, and Alberta wants it. So we have to start to discuss in Canada, are we able to get things done at all? And that's a challenge for us because with all of the slowdown in our, our permitting systems and our ability to get projects done, in the face of that, the United States economy is ripping along with uh, more oil production there than ever before in history, and a 40% drop in their corporate income tax means that a lot of investment is going to be heading south rather than staying in Canada. And you can be, you know, take a, uh, the moral high ground and say, well, isn't that a good thing? We don't need this fossil fuel industry anyway. Well, come on, folks. We've got 3.5 million motor vehicles in British Columbia got the biggest international airport in Western Canada, and suddenly we're told that uh, fuel supplies are no longer going to be reliable because it might be coming by rail car. That's a really, really bad idea and shows a real breakdown in our management of our society. We saw a climate plan unveiled by uh, the province and, of course, with the help of the Green Party uh, just last week. Uh, some sort of an irony there that uh, it relies so heavily on electrification uh, from two parties that campaigned on, on mothballing Site C. And now we have a plan that puts an electrification load on the province that potentially could see more dams being built or, or kind of more power generation from somewhere. Uh, your thought on that? Well, I'm glad you point this out, Shane, because your colleagues in the media have been a little bit slow to point this out, and as is often the case, you're right on top of it. This issue of the NDP and the Greens saying what a terrible thing Site C is and how they were going to oppose it and put an end to it, blah, blah, blah. Now they're totally dependent on Site C to what they call electrify the gas fields in the Northeast. Well, where's that power supposed to come from? Well, it turns out it's from Site C. So there's talking out of both sides of their mouth in this thing. There's a big problem in terms of the NDP and Green plan to electrify our economy is where is the electricity going to come from, first of all? And secondly, how is it going to get distributed? Because if we all start plugging in our cars at 7 p.m. every night, there's going to be this whopping big load on the electrical grid. And how is that going to be managed? So these things get um, developed over time, but the lack of planning around this is pretty scary. And there's also the problem that they've announced with great flourish their climate action plan but they've soft-pedaled the point that a quarter of it is still to be accounted for. One quarter of it is missing. So before they jump up and down and celebrate, they need to explain how they're going to get us across the finish line. And how would you get us across the finish line, Andrew? I mean, there's a chance you could be premier one of these days. And I remember going back to Gordon Campbell, who uh, had his come-to-Jesus moment with the environment uh, some many years ago. And yet, greenhouse gas emissions have kept building steadily in this province year after year. If there's a problem out there. we got to deal with it. So how would you get us there? Well, we've got to remember that we now have almost 5 million people in this province. And so we have... Uh, in response to the existing carbon tax, we have one of the most fuel-efficient fleets of vehicles in the continent because people respond to the price signals and buy more efficient cars. I'm sitting in a little four-cylinder Japanese car that I own, and that's just great. It's all I really need. At the same time, we have to make sure life is affordable because some people need that big Ford pickup truck to go and work in the bush if they're in Quinell or if they're in Chetwind. We've got to respect that. And so we have to find that way of doing things that's actually be workable for British Columbians. And part and parcel of that is, you know, an environmental agenda that works for everybody. I've been very keen on saying we've got to have much better wildlife management. We've got to protect wetlands. We've got to have, get serious about salmon conservation. Because those are things that unless we do them, nobody will do them. 
and we will see the price of that, whether it's in forest fires or loss of species or anything else. We've got to deal with it. And the the climate change agenda is fine. We can contribute there. But let's remember, we are one tiny corner of a worldwide problem. We can set the example. We've got to get other people to catch up, or we're going to be doing this for next to nothing. What are we going to accomplish if the rest of the world continues to pour our greenhouse gases? So there are two actions here. We've got to make sure we're climate leaders. At the same time, we've got to make sure we take care of our own scenarios, things like wetlands, like wildlife conservation. And, you know, the, the thing that interests me is you talk to trappers and hunters and environmentalists, they all agree we need to get a proper wildlife inventory in B.C. and start managing for the long run. This is our great legacy, why, why we live here. The reason we're proud to be British Columbians is we live in this beautiful natural environment, and it's ours to win it or to lose it. How, how, would, you, how would you do that? Well, it's a matter of starting, first of all, on the wildlife issue is a great example we have very poor information about our wildlife populations around the province. It's very anecdotal. Hunting and trapping and outfitters' quotas are set pretty arbitrarily. They're done in Victoria. So we need to take, for instance, the funds that are collected from wildlife tags should be dedicated, an equivalent amount should be put into wildlife conservation. And the first thing we've got to do is get a handle on the numbers. And it's interesting, no matter where I go, Cranbrook, uh, Fort St. John, Prince George, Terrace, Everybody agrees on this. And I'm actually here in Surrey where there's a good part of our community that is interested in wildlife, and they absolutely agree with this. So let's get on with it. Let's do something real for the environment, make sure we get results that we can look at right here in B.C. All right, let's dive into some of the other issues. Uh, one of the big ones looming, uh, while we don't know the result yet, is the uh, proportional representation referendum. Uh, last update as of Friday, according to the update this morning from Elections BC, 41% turnout. That will probably edge up, so we're looking at possibly 42 maybe 43% when the dust settles on this thing. Uh, is that enough in your eyes or no? Well, the spooky thing is this thing should have been managed much better. If it had been done at a general election, we'd have had well over 50% turnout. It would have had no cost of doing the, uh, the vote because it would have been free as an add-on at the election. Instead, we spent $15 million on this thing. We're going to have a huge number of spoiled ballots, I predict, because it was such a confusing ballot. It should have been a simple yes-no question at a general election. Let's not forget, that's what John Horgan promised us. That's what he did not deliver. Now we're going to live with the consequences. If there's a 41% turnout, as we've got today, and 21 of those 41 vote for the change, well, we'll sort out where we are then. And then of those 21, they'll vote for one of three systems. So you're looking at maybe 10% of the population dictating the other 90% how we're going to vote. That's an issue, you know. And we're also going to see a lot of variation around the province. Now, the lowest voter turnout on this is in Surrey, and Surrey Wally at about 23%. That's a pretty scary low number. And the highest are in Parksville, I think it is, and Sandwich North and the Island. Different population, different priorities. And we'll see how it spreads around the province in terms of who uh, prevails in this referendum and who doesn't. Sadly, the NDP did not leave the option open for a sober second thought if the, if the uh, turnout is poor. They said no matter how many people show up, the result is binding and will go that way. So this is a, a structure that should not have been... Uh, dealt with and allowed to proceed. Unfortunately, the Greens were so hungry to hang on to what they've got, they browbeat the NDP into this, and here we are, the messy, messy referendum. Uh, an email sent out by the Liberal Party last week caught my eye on the Friday deadline. Uh, it says that, uh, and I quote, uh, the party's going to push back with every tool available to us if the Premier and the Greens try to, again, and I quote here, use the votes of a small fraction of British Columbians to rewrite the rules of our democracy. So two things to you. Uh, number one is the 42 or 43 or whatever the final number is, uh, participation, participation rate. Does that qualify as a small fraction to you? And then if so, uh, how do you go about pushing back? Should pro-rep win? Well, I think the issue is really uh, how do we end up with the system that gets uh, generated by this referendum? It's going to be one-sixth, maybe one-quarter of the people who vote. So take the 42% number. A quarter of that, you pick MMP or RUP or DMP, one of these three crazy systems the NDP put on the ballot, that would be 10% of the public. And you sit back and you say, so are 10% of the public going to dictate to the other 90%? And, you know, in PEI, they had this experience in 2016. They decided that when it was 19% wanted to change, that wasn't enough. 
They said, we can't follow through on this. Here we've got the NDP setting themselves up to have 10% of the population tell us how to live. How do you push back, though, Andrew? I mean, there's uh, conversely, there's people out there saying, hey, it's a referendum. The people have spoken, regardless of the turnout rate. I mean, how can the Liberals deny sort of democracy in that level? How, so how do you push back, and do you agree with that? Well, we'll have to see the regional distribution of the votes. We'll have to see which of the systems gets chosen if uh, PR does prevail in this referendum. We'll have to see how many spoiled ballots there are. You know, God forbid a quarter of the ballots are spoiled. That's a real problem. And we'll see where all that turns out. So I don't want to jump the gun and we'll see what the landscape looks like when the results come out. But all of us are waiting to see with great interest. Uh, let's talk about the Speaker of the House. It's a controversy that's gripped uh, the legislature and to some degree the public out in British Columbia for the last few weeks. Um, I talked to Mary Polak last week, who uh, definitely has plenty of concerns about how uh, Mr. Plekis has conducted himself. So to you, uh, do you have confidence in Daryl Plekis uh, as Speaker of the House and how he's conducted himself in that office uh, concerning Mr. Lenz and Mr. James or no? Well, this thing has turned into an unfortunate mess. I mean, Mr. Plekis is the one who sat in the room and said these two people have to be removed, and he would like his old friend Mr. Mullen to be appointed a double the salary to serve at Sergeant Arms. And wisely, the House leader said that's crazy. And then two days later, we find out that Mr. Mullen was the investigator who led to the removal of Mr. Lentz. Well, wait a second. You had a guy who is your friend with no qualifications at all, hired to investigate a guy and wanted to take his job. I mean, the conflicts of interest are flagrant in that situation. Then last week, we had the meeting where Daryl Plekis felt obliged to blurt out that this is under a police investigation, so he can't say anything. But by the way, it's about the finances of the people who work here. And the Auditor General sits up and says, but wait a second, are you telling me my audits are bad for the last couple of years? I mean, this is ridiculous. you got to tell me what's going on so we can redo the audit. And then Plekis blurts out, well, it's time for a forensic audit of at least three separate offices under his control, including his own. Well, the conflict of interest is blatant there. The speaker is going to have to step away from any audit scenario and let somebody else come in. The Auditor General can't do it because her work's being called into question. And I'd be surprised if there's any legitimacy to that. But nonetheless, we're going to have to get an auditor from outside BC to come in and review this whole mess because Daryl Plekis keeps blurting things out in fits of um, distress that he's going through. So this has been very poorly managed from the very first step, which is why we went back in the legislature and said, time to review that motion and have a thorough look at this, and the NDP have blocked it every step of the way, because they are desperate to protect Daryl Plekis from public scrutiny. Should Mr. Plekis resign, Andrew? I don't know if that's the answer at this point. Um, he's certainly going to have to step away from any of these audits because he's asking people to audit himself, and you can't do that. Auditors have to be completely arm's length, and Daryl Plekis has really uh, cornered himself this time by spitting out things he shouldn't have said and raising demands that can't be fulfilled. You know, he's really discrediting the role of the Speaker and creating a lot of problems for all of us, let alone for himself. Uh, the other huge issue that's uh, going to come at us in the new year and has, has definitely been a big one uh, this past year already is ICBC. We're going to see some major rate hikes to some degree uh, next year and probably the years after that as well. This thing, uh, to quote Mr. Mr. Eby, is, is a dumpster fire. Uh, how do we deal with it? I mean, people are, are, are going to want to have rates that are affordable, but uh, I just don't know how that happens anymore. Well, I've been saying for a year now, this is a 45-year-old public anymore. Why are we still using ICBC when everybody is so skeptical? So time for a review of this from top to bottom. We're not the only place in the world that buys auto insurance. So let's look around at Australia and the UK and all across the 50 jurisdictions in the USA and about 13 jurisdictions in Canada. Maybe Saskatchewan's model is better. Their state run. Maybe the Quebec no fault is an issue. Maybe we can look at something to get the best possible deal for the motoring public. Because right now, the public are not being served. When my wife, with a flawless motoring record, gets a bill for $2,800 to drive seven kilometers to work, we got a problem. And it's time to we stop being so defensive about ICBC and how to look at whether it's the right way to go. Maybe it should be turned into a co-op. Maybe it should become a mutual insurer where the policy owners own the company and can tell it what to do. Maybe we need wide-open competition. Let's find out what the best way is and get ahead and do it. 
How do we do it, though? I mean, your government back in the day refused to do it. The current government is, doesn't seem to be charting a course there. So how do we address it? No, the current government has doubled down and is trying to protect ICBC because they love state-run monopolies. They think government knows best, and they're going to tell you how to live. We're saying we're not geniuses. I don't know anybody in government who, that I come across who knows how to run an insurance company. Let's find out the best way to run an insurer. We don't have to be the ones running it. Why are we so loyal to the idea of having a state-running automobile insurer? It loses money. It makes people unhappy. Let's have another look at this whole thing. Start all over again and have a good look around the continent and see what the options are. Because there's no shortage of options. Everybody else in the developed world buys auto insurance. We've got a problem. Let's learn from others. Do you think taxpayers are going to swallow uh, another year or two worth of insurance rate hikes before uh, it becomes such an issue that it, that it just polarizes people and there's some kind of taxpayer revolt or driver revolt? Well, let's look at it. When you think about it, there are 3.5 million automobiles in British Columbia and about 4.9 million people. So the motoring public and the taxpayer are usually the same person. And so basically what you're saying is, oh, we don't want to hurt your feelings by having auto insurance rates uh, reflect the actual cost of the business. Let's make the taxpayer pay it. Well, at the end of the day, that's the same person. It's just a different pocket that's being picked. Let's see if there's a better way to provide auto insurance that can be more affordable, more reliable, and not run these whopping deficits. Because if this isn't going to go away, it's got to get fixed. Don't just carry on with something that doesn't work. All right, uh, running out of time here, and I've taken more than I than I should have with you. But uh, uh, last but not least, or getting close to last anyway, uh, Nanaimo by-election, uh, your estimation of, of the chances of grabbing that for the Liberals? Well, I was there on Saturday, and I've been there uh, most Saturdays, and it's remarkable when you go around and bump into people and say, our candidate's Tony Harris, and they say, Tony Harris? That's the Harris family, right? Oh, yeah, that's great. We'll happily vote for them. They've been in Nanaimo since 1876. Six generations in the town. They have a whole bunch of uh, businesses that they're involved in there, whole fleet of employees who are keen and very good reputation. And we're getting the sense from people that they're prepared for a change. And if Tony Harris is our candidate, they're happy to vote for him. So we're pretty optimistic. It's looking good. And, uh, you know, I like to say, every time I go to Nanaimo, you get a stronger and stronger impression that we could have a great result there. If the balance of power tips, Andrew, if you grab Nanaimo or maybe Mr. Plekis uh, steps aside or does something, gets recalled, maybe Mr. Eby gets recalled, if the balance of power shifts enough, will you push pull down government or no? You know, that's a decision that is really in the hands of the public. Right now the vote in the House is 43 to 42. We're on the short end of that with 42 seats. And if the Nanaimo by-election goes our way, it'll make it 43-43, and then we're going to have to see where it goes from there. The ultimate decision is with the lieutenant governor, but uh, if the people of British Columbia speak in such clear terms that they're fed up with the NDP and these silly games being played by the Greens, then it's going to be time for uh, a review of where we stand and where we need to go. All right. Last question. Uh, you've refreshed the party uh, to some degree in the last convention, putting a new coat of paint on it. Uh, just sort of curious, I'm not sure when the next election will come, whether it will be the mandated one or something earlier, but as we charge towards that, uh, what, what are the major issue or issues that you're going to build the party around to appeal to voters? You know, I was quite glad that our convention was as positive and enthusiastic and energetic as it was, and out of that came a tagline for this party of opportunity for all of bc and that's what it's really all about my kids are 20 22 24 they're pessimistic they're worried they're not sure where they'll work or if they can afford to live here our job if we're fortunate enough to form government is make sure that there's opportunity for all of bc so that everybody has a chance to get ahead more housing so people can find a place to live better private sector jobs by keeping taxes down and above all else really strong post-secondary education so people get the skills they need to be successful in this complicated world we live in. So we got to make sure that the 28-year-old, the 48-year-old say, I'm going to get ahead right here. I just feel it. I'm feeling confident here in British Columbia, and we're sensing that fewer and fewer people are thinking that. Going around Surrey here today, there are a lot of people in the building trades who are running out of work. and They're getting very concerned that the uh, picture is going to turn bleak in a quite uh, unexpected and quick way. That's not uh, the result of good governance. That's the result of the NDP trying to tell people how to live. Mr. Wilkinson, always a pleasure. I've taken a lot more of your time than I planned on, but uh, you've been generous with it. And if I don't talk to you before, uh, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to you and yours.
Well, thanks, Shane. It's always a pleasure, and we'll look forward to a bright future for British Columbia. But I'm not sure it's going to happen under the NDP. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll go from one Andrew to another. Andrew Weaver joins us. Local news now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Uh, pleasure to talk uh, on the phone now to the leader of the BC Green Party, Andrew Weaver. Andrew, how are you? Very well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, pleasure to have you on. Okay, well, it's uh, been by far an unbelievably busy year. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of some of the issues, I'm just kind of curious, uh, highs and lows this year, what's it been like for you? Uh, it's been, a, it's been a, a really good year. It was, you know, lows probably were in the beginning of 2018 when the session was about to start. We, you know, this is the first time the government was supposed to lay out its agenda. It was taking some time to come out. Uh, they kind of bumbled their way through this speculation tax uh, in terms of not actually articulating early on the, the kind of details. Uh, Mr. Horgan started stumping for LNG. Uh, this was early on in our it was about a year ago, and, and, and we had yet to kind of figure out how a minority government was going to work. The highlight would be literally uh, December the 5th when uh, we announced collectively the Clean BC plan, which was an economic plan for British Columbia for uh, grounded in, uh, you know, innovation, which was, was really quite exciting. So, so it's been, a, it's been a, it's a really good year in terms of learning, in terms of learning what it means to be in a minority government. And I think we ended the year on a very positive note. All right. Well, let's talk about that climate plan because it's a it's a big one, and as you said, it's kind of the feather in your cap. Although a lot of things have to fall into place between yeah. uh, now and then. So, um, first off, why don't we rewind to that? Because you mentioned one of the lowest points was among them was this talk about the LNG facility, which eventually sort of came to fruition. And I remember you drew the way you called as a line in the sand and said, "There's no way we can get our greenhouse gas emissions with an LNG facility." Uh, you've obviously, to some degree, come on board. How do you square that circle? Are you satisfied that we can do the those two things, this plan and this LNG facility? So first off, I, I, to this day, do not believe LNG Canada will ever build its facility in Kinema. That's I still stand by that today. I cannot see how the economics work, even given the generational sellout in terms of how we're giving this away. You know, literally, be, I mean, people need to know this, is that LNG Canada are going to be exempted from PST until during the construction. <clears throat> they don't have to pay the carbon tax, you and I do. Uh, they're going to get electricity at 5.4 cents a kilowatt hour. And guess what? We don't have that electricity to give, the, give them unless we build Site C. And guess what? It's going to cost us about double that to three times that to produce the electricity to give LNG Canada. And it gets worse. The B.C. Liberals, uh, what they thought, of course, was that they wanted to attract the B.C. LNG, uh, the LNG here. So they basically gave the resource away for free. What I mean by that is through the expansion of royalty credit programs, uh, we, we basically give the gas for free. And then the LNG and the, the B.C. Liberals said, well, when they make some money, we'll have this LNG Income Tax Act and the province will start getting some money. It's so bad that, in fact, in the second quarter of 2018, we actually lost $24 million from natural gas royalties. So royalties, that's money we're supposed to get, was negative $24 million in the second quarter of 2018. Uh, so, but the NDP said, well, that's not good enough, so we're going to repeal the LNG Income Tax Act. And we're no longer going to require you to actually use electricity in the compression of LNG. What they've done then in doing that is they've basically given a resource for free, because we don't, we hardly get anything in royalties, to LNG Canada, who now can burn that resource, not pay the carbon tax in it, and, and generate some of their electricity, not all of it, but some of it, for the compression. And so they don't have to have, uh, they don't have to pay carbon tax on that. They're getting it at half the, uh, for free because we've given them the natural gas. And for the rest of our operations, we've given them site C electricity. So this is outrageous what's going on. So that definitely was a low point. In terms of emissions, um, about four megatons of, <coughs> excuse me, Shane, about four there, There's some emissions right there. Emissions <laughs> from that one plant. Uh, we are 6.1 megatons short of uh, the 40% target by 2030. That is, we've done, uh, we've got a plan for three quarters of the way there. It'd be very easy to get there, uh, 100%, if that doesn't go ahead. <coughs> me. But with that said, still, um, I still believe that we can, even with that, uh, we can get very close, if not all the way, um, to the 2030 target. However, there's no way we can meet other targets if we don't 
put in check this uh, idea that somehow we're going to be sending natural gas all around the world, when in fact we're just basically giving it away at the same time as, as hurting our ability to make our targets. Uh, and, of course, a big part of the plan is electrification. You and yes. the NDP both campaigned on scrapping Site C, yes. and it looks like we're going to need that dam, if not even more, to meet uh, the electrification demand. Uh, ironic, no? No, I, uh, no, actually. I would argue even with the electrification, which is going to be a push, I mean, the next uh, the, the gap, so to speak, the 25% must come from the electrification of the upstream oil and gas, as well as uh, uh, the, the mining sectors. And, and that's... The, the, the thing is, though, we can bring on stream renewable energy on demand through partnership with indigenous communities as well as uh, uh, industry out there that are ready to go. There are the, there's a myriad projects, small projects, uh, small wind projects, small solar projects, small hydro projects, small biomass projects, small coupled uh, pump storage problems. There's a whole bunch of them that are in the queue to be approved. And some have actually been approved, but be, they need a purchase agreement with BC Hydro to give to, for the power. So the barrier is not our ability to build dams. The barrier is the regulatory barrier in BC Hydro, uh, who control, in essence, the, the gate for electricity producers. So uh, again, Site C is one of the most expensive ways of producing power. Uh, we could get wind at a fraction. And nowadays, when people talk wind, and they're not talking intermittent anymore because you can actually provide, uh, as they're doing in Australia, Mexico, and other places, you can you can uh, uh, produce firm wind, which is wind with storage. Uh, that actually is a fraction of the cost of IT. Hmm. Uh, still with electrification, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I mean, I get the whole uh, zero emission vehicles by 2040, and, and we're definitely moving down that road. All, I'm on board with that. Uh, the speed bump, as I see it, are some of the smaller communities around the province, the far-flung ones where people drive long distances or a lot of uh, farming and, and agriculture and stuff like that where they use, um, you know, greenhouse gas emitting vehicles during the course of their day along with the sort of the rural mindsets along those communities how do you how do you uh, you know switch that mindset how do you make those communities change much easier in the city not so easy in the outskirts so so right now i mean if you think about a zero emission vehicle standard when it's introduced obviously it's going to be going strong first in the urban areas there's no doubt about that look if you come to victoria right now one of the most common cars you'll see on the road is the nissan leaf so so it's it's and and so what a zero emission vehicle standard means is that if you're going to sell new cars in british columbia a percentage which is prescribed through regulation or or through act must be zero emitting so you could imagine the big dealers like the you know the nissans the fords the gm they'll sell their electric vehicles but they're likely not going to sell them in a hundred mile house uh they'll probably sell them in vancouver victoria where where we we there's so many vehicles on the road already and really no need for anything other than electric vehicles because the range is not an issue even now the next generation of uh evs are coming out with 400 to 500 kilometer range uh with a charge up of you know an hour these are uh, no longer barriers for most people. I mean, I drive all over Vancouver Island with, with my Leaf that only has a range of 160 kilometers. So I go to Vancouver all the time. Uh, I've got friends who go to Kamloops, Kelowna, you know, with 160 kilometer range. What is going to happen is there'll be a slow build out. I mean, you'll see this happen. There'll be a slow build out of the fast charging network. You'll start to see more and more people um, with EVs. <clears throat> some will be, you know, the plug-in hybrid, so they have an EV with a ability to get some gas. I, I, I don't see the tractor going by the wayside anytime soon. However, you're going to end up using biodiesel instead of uh, fossil fuel uh, uh, diesel in greater amounts. And that, that's covered under the low-carbon fuel standard, which is actually part of the plan, is that there'll be 20% renewable component of, uh, of fuels moving forward as of 2020 that matches California. Would that cover off for like commercial uh, trucks, the big rigs that crisscross the, the province the big, daily? <clears throat> the big rigs. Now, there's a there's a substantive amount of emissions in big rigs. Again, the obvious way forward there, which is good for for, for <clears throat> the bottom line, save a ton of money, as well as good for the environment, as well as good for air quality, is to start to see conversion to natural gas. I think you're going to see that. We got two big companies in BC, Vetter and Westport. These are two big companies that are you know we should be very proud of. They're BC-based companies that specialize in long-haul natural gas transportation systems. So I think this is actually an economic opportunity for BC as, as we, we, in the short term, build a, a domestic supply for our natural gas. That is basically taking dirty diesel off the road and re replacing it with you know, a much cleaner fuel. 
I, I think that's what you'll see in the first initially. And, you know, around the world, you've got Britain, you've got Netherlands, you've got India, you've got Norway, you've got, I mean, 50% of new cars already in Norway are electric. Around the world, countries are moving away from internal combustion engine. And, and, and honestly, you know, if you drive an electric vehicle, it doesn't take very long to realize that you're wondering why you haven't been driving it all your life, because you drive it off the lot. That's the last time you need an oil and filter because you're never going to need one again. You don't have a muffler. You don't have a radiator. You don't have a water cooling system. You got no, uh, you know, maintenance at all. And, and you're, you're easy on the brakes. And I'm now 60,000 kilometers into my Nissan Leaf. Haven't had to have a checkup and paid zero on gas. And electricity is about 10 times cheaper. Uh, you know, it's, it's costing you 10 cents kilowatt hour about, uh, to, to, to charge up at home. And, you know, to drive, it's costing about one and a half cents a kilometer, about 10 times cheaper. Yeah. Uh, well, I drove a hybrid in a recent trip to California. It was certainly eye-opening on that front. And wife and I are now thinking about that for sure. Uh, I want to talk about some specific issues now. Uh, first off, a big controversy gripping the legislature over the last couple of weeks. And I know there's an RCMP investigation, so we won't touch on that because uh, we can't. But I uh, just a quick question to you. Are you confident in the job the Speaker of the House is doing and that everything was above board in this process that led up to Craig James and Gary Lenz being suspended or no? I have enormous confidence in the Speaker of our legislature, and I think, uh, you know, it, it behooves us to stand by and let the process play out. You know, a Speaker would not have done this if there was not some information that, uh, you know, he he felt needed to be acted upon. Uh, you know, I sensed, like others, his sense of frustration uh, on the meeting, the Lampsy meeting he had uh, a, a few days ago, <clears throat> and, and um, you know, Clearly for him, he would like it to speed up the process. But uh, again, this is very serious. And, and you know, uh, it, there's a whole bunch of questions that I have that I will be asking. But before I start asking those questions, we really need to get to the bottom of what this investigation is going on. We need the, the RCMP and the special prosecutors to actually um, complete what they're doing. And we need to actually give the speaker a bit of room here. Uh, to, I, I would argue, to let this finish. You know, what's happened has happened. Let's let it finish, and then let's judge once the information is before us. There is none right now, and conspiracy theories and speculation are running amok. And, and frankly, I think that undermines our overall confidence in the system. And, and I have great confidence in the system, which is why I'm just, I think, uh, you know, let's see how this plays out. Well, can you share what some of your questions are, or, or no? No, I, I mean, <clears throat> obviously, I want to, <clears throat> the questions I will ask upon the results uh, coming in is, is you know, you could imagine one of one of, of two things. Well, let's suppose hypothetically there is something that is found through all of this. I don't know or not. I will ask the question, well, why did it take till now? I mean, I think it's a natural question. Why, why is it taking so long for this to come forward? Uh, that's a question uh, I would ask. And if nothing comes about of this, I would ask, um, you know, questions like what, what, why did this, happen in the first place. However, I think that uh, given that we have no information, and, and there's much more detailed questions you could peel off from those broader questions about who knew what when or who didn't know what when, and, and uh, but, but again, all of that is just hypothetical because we have nothing before us other than the information that our House leader was given the day, uh, a Monday, a couple of weeks ago at 8 o'clock in the evening, that there was an investigation, criminal investigation, with two special prosecutors. And her recommendation to us, my caucus colleague Adam Olson and me, as, was that we support the motion in the morning, which we clearly did, as did everyone else in the legislature, to allow the investigation to move forward. And uh, and and we voted to have the, 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 the clerk and the sergeant in arms put on administrative leave. They weren't fired. They were just pulled on full full salary and and leave while the investigation goes forward. And I think that that was, you know, in light of the information presented to the House leaders, that's a prudent thing to do. And it's it's uh, let the system go for process, go play forward and then worry at the end of it uh, what what the results are. All right. Uh, proportional representation can be a pretty big story once the results uh, come out, whatever they may be. Uh, I'm kind of curious. 5248. I'm, I'm predicting 5248. Yeah. <laughs> All right, done. You're on the record. Um, a couple questions on that topic. One, Andrew Wilkinson said uh, anything under 40 would be illegitimate, essentially. And I note in sort of a fundraising campaign style email sent out a few days ago, uh, the Liberals are promising to fight this thing uh, no matter, you know, if it's a yes vote, uh, fight this thing using whatever options they have, essentially. Uh, from your perspective, concerning, no? 
What concerns me is the fact that Mr. Wilkinson is not being forthright with respect to why he would continue to fight it. This is not about what the will of the people is in the referendum. This is our democracy. Uh, I, I, we don't know how many people will, will, when all is said and done, have voted, but it's certainly over 41%, uh, which was last Friday's number. Um, I, I think it's very, very troubling that Mr. Wilkinson is not going to accept what the, uh, what the referendum result is. And it's even more troubling that really what he's doing is he's worried about his party. And so he's really worried about his party splitting off into two or perhaps three that uh, in British Columbia, we, we, we don't really have a vibrant uh, BC Conservative Party. Well, we have members, but they don't get 5% of the vote and they don't have any MLAs. I frankly think it would be very healthy for our democracy if there was a BC Conservative Party. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, we need to have that voice in the legislature uh, on, on some aspects of it. We might agree on some other things we might not. But that's how you build. That's how you build support in the legislature. You find issues and you look around to see you know, if you can get people to, to back you on these issues. So, uh, so Mr. Wilkinson's in survival for his party as opposed to standing up as a great champion of democracy democracy that he is is pretending to be uh, and frankly i think he should just respect the results of the referendum and move on uh, and, and and rather than uh, you know continue forward with his uh, sour grapes approach to to being where he is like the pc liberals it's been two years now nearly they have to recognize at some point they are not in government they are in opposition and it's about that time they started acting like a government like a, an opposition or a government in waiting uh, because their behavior in the legislature is certainly not becoming of what you would expect in an official opposition and it certainly is not something you would expect in a government in waiting so they've got a lot of work to do internally to clean up the the mess in their own house and get, get to actually articulate where they're, where, what they stand for and, and what they want to do, because all we know is that they just, what they don't want, but we don't know what they do up these days. Uh, the proportional representation referendum was uncoupled from being held alongside the municipal vote at one point in order to try and steer clear of a low voter turnout, try and inspire something greater. We don't have a final number yet, but it's going to be somewhere in the 42 to 43 percent participation rate range. Uh, satisfied with that or no? I, 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 42, 43, that's, that's higher than some turnouts in some ridings in the provincial election. You know, I, I, I believe uh, my recollection is the, the city of Lankford had a, a municipal election, a civic election recently, and 18% showed up. So, so we have, if you don't like the democracy, part of the, you have a choice. You can vote or not vote. Choosing not to vote is, is a legitimate thing that we allow in our present democracy. You can't do it in Australia. They require you to vote. But here we say if you don't want to vote, you don't have to. So, so I, I, I think it's sour grapes if you don't like the results. The, react, the reality is over 4 million people had the opportunity, or maybe it's 3 million people had the, over 3 million had the opportunity to vote. Um, something between 1 and 2 million chose to vote. Uh, good for the people who voted and those people who didn't vote, you know, they abdicated or, or their responsibility uh, or decided that they don't want to uh, participate. And that's we just have to live with the results. All right. Uh, let's wrap this up. And we've talked a lot about the year in the past and some of the issues. Uh, looking ahead to 2019, what's on your priority list? Uh, you know, you and the, and the NDP government have accomplished quite a bit in 2018. Uh, what's left or what's new and what's what's the agenda going to be next year? So we've done an incredible amount uh, of work collectively in the last two years. It, it's When I look back, it's, it's quite remarkable, in my view, what's happened in this short time. We've banned big money at all levels of government, from local school board through, through provincial. You know, we've brought in lobbyist reform. That just passed. Really important legislation to uh, lobbyist reform. That came out of our platform. We've got the Emerging Economy Task Force, Innovation Commission. We've got the results beginning to, to come to fruition. You're starting to see the economy diversify. And why that's critical, if you look at second quarter revenues, income and corporate taxes are up and the amount of money the province is getting from property transfer tax is down. So what is happening is the measures the government has put in place to temper the speculation in the housing market are having an effect. We're getting fewer revenues. At the same time, the, the mechanisms that have been put in place to, to nurture and, and, and uh, innovation uh, are also working because you're seeing the, the increasing uh, revenue coming from corporate and, and personal income taxes. People are working. We have the lowest unemployment rate in the country, and we've had that year, month after month after month. So things are working great now. So the question then is, what's what's happening in the spring? I, I we put in place 
the the seeds for some really innovative uh, ideas. What we have to do now is move forward and see them implemented. At the same time, BC Hydro is going through a major review. Uh, this will be an all-hands-on-deck uh, kind of approach for us in the coming year because right now some of the barriers for the introduction of the Clean BC strategy is regulatory problems within BC Hydro. BC Hydro needs to, you know, have a, we have to have a good hard look at how energy is produced in this province, uh, how we plan to continue to produce it, how we plan to store it and transmit it. And, and so uh, I'll be putting a lot of effort into the BC Hydro review. And then, of course, there we, we, we have to start to look at our confidence and supply agreement because so many of the things we have in our confidence and supply agreement have already been ticked off in, in two years that we're going to have to think about moving forward as to what what we might view as other priorities collectively. So we've 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 focused on what we agree on, and I, I think you know the BCNDP might have some labor code stuff they want to push forward. We we might have some some uh, tech ideas that we'd like to to get going. We'll have to go into negotiations coming up. Oh, that's interesting. So is that a are those negotiations a done deal, or are they just sort of in the idea phase right now? Are you guys in the actually idea sound? phase? I mean, we've 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 had a talk about. The confidence and supply agreement, both parties recognize that, you know, we've done a lot that's in there, you know, whether it be the lobbyist reform, <clears throat> investment in childcare and education. We've got the beginnings of a clean growth, a clean BC strategy. We've got the Innovation Commission Emerging Economy Task Force. We've got uh, banning big money. All these things are done um, or are in the process of going. We've got basic income pilot. I'm going to a meeting on that next week. So we've done an awful lot. And so what we need to do is continue to move these things that we've already started forward, but at the same time, take a look and, you know, reflect upon what has happened and see whether we can come up with some, you know, appendix or some some way forward to actually continue um, giving certainty, is in essence, uh, to government and to people of British Columbia that, that we will have a stable working uh, minority government for years to come. Interesting stuff. Uh, Andrew, always a pleasure. And if I don't speak to you before, uh, a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to you and yours. Merry Christmas to you as well, and thanks so much. And that was Andrew Weaver, leader of the BC Green Party, and that is it for the season finale of Inside Politics on Radio NL this year. Look forward to catching up with you in the new year. Big thanks to everybody on the show today, Premier John Horgan, Andrew Wilkinson, Andrew Weaver, and of course the panel members who've been on the show all throughout the year, and Keith Baldry, Rob Shaw, Vaughn Palmer, Richard Zussman, Shannon Waters, and Binder Sudgeon, as well as many others who have appeared on the show. And a big thanks to you for listening and make this show a, something of a success, something I'm really, really proud of. I look forward to picking it up again in the new year and to all of you a merry christmas and a happy new year accountable to you for kamloops computer center this is inside politics with shane woodford on radio nl